This is Writers on a New England Stage, a partnership between NHPR and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Writers on a New England Stage brings acclaimed authors to the Granite State to discuss their lives and recent works. And earlier this fall, NHPR's Hannah McCarthy spoke at length with NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg about her latest work, Dinners with Ruth, a memoir on the powers of friendships. This conversation was recorded before a live audience at the Music Hall. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for being here. I am thrilled to see a packed audience, which is no less than I would expect for Miss Nina Totenberg. <laughs> thank you. And Nina, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. It's really my pleasure. Okay. And I hope everybody gives to their local public radio station. <laughs> we didn't prep that beforehand. That's all just fresh. Um, now, of course, we're here to talk about Nina's book, Dinners with Ruth, and I am going to ask Nina about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I assure you. Uh, but first, I want to start with what my colleague Deb Turner was talking about, Nina's illustrious career in journalism, covering the Supreme Court and covering law. Now, Nina, I know that when you first started covering the Supreme Court, it was not considered important enough to be your full-time job. Well, I, when I first was assigned to cover the Supreme Court, um, I, I, in my earlier days, I had many other jobs, in print first, and then when NPR hired me, we had only one news program, and it was an hour and a half. It was all things considered in the evening. It started at five, not four. And um, uh, my beat was the Supreme Court, the Justice Department, the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, any major sca legal scandal that broke, uh, or, and, and live hearings that covered those kinds of things, confirmation hearings, of course, and the intelligence community. <laughs> oh, and I covered presidential and vice presidential campaigns a little bit also. <laughs> Astonishing. And yet, yet, you did, you made the conscious decision to carve out a space for yourself covering the Supreme Court. Can you talk about what that was like you're, especially as a young journalist, a woman, a non-lawyer, how did you approach covering the Supreme Court? Well, when I first got assigned to cover the court, I worked for the, the late, great National Observer, which was a weekly publication uh, published by Dow Jones, which at the time also owned the Wall Street Journal. And it was a weekly, and that made it much, again, much easier in the sense that I had time to do research, and I would call anybody, anytime, anywhere, to ask any question. There's one good thing about being young as a reporter. You're, you understand that if you're gonna do anything, you just have to be willing to ask any question at all. And if it's a stupid question, so be it. Hmm. And speaking of questions, it's 1971, you are covering a case called Reed v. Reed, and you discover that uh, 
someone named Ruth Bader Ginsburg had written a brief for the ACLU for this case that was supposed to go before the Supreme Court. And you see that this woman's number is right under her name at Rutgers University. And you call this professor up. She's a law professor at Rutgers. And that conversation is one that Ruth Bader Ginsburg would look back on and say, you know, that was our first conversation and we have been dear friends ever since. What about that conversation compelled Ruth to look back and say that was the beginning of that dear friendship? Well, we certainly, it was the beginning, but we, we weren't dear friends yet. She probably thought, this, this girl is asking me dumb questions. But she never treated any of my questions as dumb. And um, that day, I really didn't understand the, the point she was making in the brief that women were covered by the 14th Amendment guarantee to equal protection of the law because after all, women didn't even have the vote when the 14th Amendment was enacted. And she spent an hour answering my questions and explaining to me what I needed to know, which basically boiled down to the 14th Amendment covers all persons and women are persons. <laughs> and, and you were compelled to continue to call her back over and over again. I know well, anybody who would spend that kind of time with me, somebody who was completely new on the beat, I, and it was just the beginning of what became her, her battle and the, the architecture that she wrought to build um, the fight for women's rights in the courts. And so I, um, if you insist on applauding, I will never finish anything. So, um, and I, and I, so I understood that this was somebody I should be in touch with and talk to regularly. And eventually we met, we met at a very boring conference and it was so boring that we left and went shopping. <laughs> and I don't remember anything about the shopping, I, but I do remember a lot about that afternoon. So, um, and it was, a, it, you know, it was a friendship that grew slowly. I mean, she lived in New York then, so I didn't see her very often, but eventually she moved to Washington when she was appointed to the Court of Appeals, and we became closer and closer friends over the years until the last couple of years of her life. We were incredibly close because she needed me at that point. There were earlier times when I needed her in my personal life and she always stepped right up to the, the, to the plate. And so um, my husband and I stepped up to the plate for the latter part of her, the last part of her life. Um, my husband um, is really doing not the most fun duty. He's promised to come with me on this promotional tour. And he is, I've now taken, he's here tonight, and I've now taken to referring to him as Prince, formerly known as David. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd love to talk a little bit about that. You, you've described Ruth as being consistently stoic and internal and in utmost control and that it took you a very long time to find that you had, in fact, become intimate friends, friends who needed one another. What was it that led you to see that? When did you truly know how close you had become? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I can answer it fully. 
I do remember that when she turned 50, her husband made a, a book of letters that he asked her friends to write to her. And I, I was quite surprised he asked me because I didn't realize I was that much of a friend to her. And so when I was writing the book, I, I, I didn't, of course, I didn't have a copy of the letter, and my impression always was that it was a really pretty stupid letter. Um, but I called up her daughter and asked her if she had that book, and she did, and she sent me the letter. And to my really great surprise, it was a pretty good letter. <laughs> but I did sign the letter for some unknown reason to me. Um, maybe I thought she knew more than one Nina. I signed it Nina Totenberg. <laughs> And there's one piece of advice that Ruth passes on to you that I believe she received from her father-in-law, which was, as she is considering becoming a lawyer herself, he says to her, essentially, if you can do it, you'll do it, and if you can't, you can't. And, and she, from there on out, would always ask herself, well, is this worth it? And if I answer yes, I will proceed and do it. And I wonder if you have applied that same piece of advice to your life. I think so. Uh, you know, you do things that you have to in a, jo in a job. Some things you're thrilled to be able to do, and other things just go with the territory. And I don't think it, it's that different for a Supreme Court justice, even. And that I, it's a very good piece of advice her father-in-law gave her. Her mother-in-law gave her even better advice, I think. On the day of their wedding, her mother-in-law sat her down. By then, Ruth's mother was, had died quite a few years earlier. And she sat her down and she said, Ruth, I want to give you the secret to a happy marriage and successful marriage. And Ruth said, what's that? And she said, it always pays to be a little deaf. <laughs> and Ruth always said that that was true on the court as well. I, I love that one of your takes of the relationships on the Supreme Court is that it's a little bit like a marriage that's not doing so well. That if you decide to stay inside of it, you find a way to communicate even if you disagree. Yes, I think that's, that's right. I don't know how well they're doing at the moment. Um, but, and my sense is they're doing less well than usual. And that goes not just because just liberals versus conservatives. I think the conservatives are not getting along all that well either because they have different ideas about how to interpret the Constitution, how to interpret statutes. They, they don't always agree about that. And what they, of course, would like is a lot of, they would like a place in the sun, each of them. And that means that things don't always go uh, Smoothly, I guess you would say. <laughs> now, I want to, sort of pivoting back to your career a little bit, you've got a lot of good journalism stories throughout this book, uh, including one in which you end up with a retaliatory FBI file because of a profile on Hoover. Um, but, you know, after telling what is a great anecdote and admittedly funny, you say, 
you know, now this is funny to think back on, but I, I worked really hard in journalism. I worked really hard in my career. And I wonder in particular how that hard work ethic applied to reporting on a court, which to so many people is obscure, is, as you call it, the marble palace. How did keeping your nose to the grindstone push your way through those doors? Well, first of all, it was fascinating to me. I was never, I've never been bored covering the Supreme Court. I'm occasionally bored reading legal briefs because they go on and on and on and on. But the cases are not boring. And in fact, I sometimes have to say to myself, all right, you're going to have to skip that one. It's interesting to you, but it will not be interesting to most people, at least in the argument stage, maybe when it's decided. So you, you have to sort of triage what you're capable of writing about and what people are willing to pay attention to, even. Um, when I was younger, I, I was, you know, I was almost always, uh, until I went to work at NPR, the only woman every place I worked, or one of two women. And even when I was covering the court for NPR, there were, when I first started covering the court, uh, there was one other woman. Eventually, then she retired, and um, there was, you know, Linda Greenhouse was the, you know, covered the court quite a bit later than I started covering the court, but I was thrilled when she was there. Now there are just as many women covering the court as there are men, but that was not true for a very long time. And it was, and I wasn't a lawyer, so all I could do was work really hard to make sure I didn't embarrass myself and that I could earn something of a reputation for doing good work. And now this book is peppered with dinners. Dinners with Ruth, yes, but also dinners with your friends and dinners with justices. And who were my friends, other justices. Who are your friends, absolutely. But, but here's what I mean to say. What, what compelled you? What gave you the confidence the first time you ever invited a Supreme Court justice over for dinner as a young reporter? I have no idea. When I, when I went back and I thought about it, and I thought, who was the first justice I ever invited for dinner? And it was Lewis Powell who was a very distinguished southern gentleman in his 60s, um, maybe even a little older, but when I invited him to dinner, probably his 60s, and his wife, Jo. Probably it was because Jo had been so nice to me and had treated me like a, as they say in Guys and Dolls, a poison. And, um, and so, for some ungodly reason, I called up Justice Powell and I asked if he and Joe would come for dinner. I was single, I was in my 20s. I, um, I had a little house I had bought that was 13 feet wide. I had another, invited another couple and I can't remember who, they, who it was. I made the dinner and served the dinner and I don't, I mean, I'm amazed that they said yes, they came, and you would have thought that I was dining, you know, they were dining at Buckingham Palace the way they 
treated me. It was incredibly gracious of them. And um, I, I have no idea how I had the balls to do that. <laughs> it, it was one of the passages that I just remember reading and thinking, no, you're not, a, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. Um, but of course you did, and it, it actually worked out quite well for you. It and, did, because, and, because he, he was always very generous with his time. He, like other members of the court, were happy to eat lunch or dinner with me um, and not to talk about what they were doing at the time, but how they did it, how they ran their chambers, how they thought about things, how they approached them. I mean, I remember a, a lunch I had with Justice Scalia when he was first on the Supreme Court. I had known him for a good 10 years before that. And I said, so what's different? He'd been on the Court of Appeals. I said, so what's different from the Court of Appeals? And, and it was very interesting what he said was different. He said, well, there are a whole bunch of subjects that I have not given any thought to that don't come before the US Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Um, I've, never, I've never even thought about the 11th Amendment. Um, death penalty cases, by and large, don't come to the, to the court. And there were several other things. And I, I, I just had never even thought about that. And, and he said, so I really have to think about them and think what I think for the first time. Of course, after a while, justices sort of know what they think about how to interpret this or that or the other thing. But situations change. You know, when I, in the early days when I covered the court, most of the cases were about civil rights and, and about the draft, actually. There were a lot of big cases about the draft. Um, those cases don't, those kinds of cases don't come up. There are different civil rights cases now. And there are all kinds of cases about, now about, that people are just starting to think about in a different way or in, about the First Amendment and technology and social media and the protections uh, under the statutes. It, it's, you know, these are all very things, sub, the subjects that the court deals with change over time, not just the personnel. Hmm. I wonder, did you find, perhaps we can say in general about Supreme Court justices because we couldn't say across the board, but is there, a, a, an enduring curiosity for a justice, because they are constantly engaging with not just constitutional ideas, but philosophical ideas, that leads them to be the sort of person who does want to join you with dinner and have a conversation, who does want you to have you up to lunch in their chambers. Is there a constant desire for some exchange of ideas? Mm, not really. <laughs> Not that way, because you can't talk about a pending case. Um, I, I, I think that most of the members of the court lead relatively, relatively isolated lives. They don't call it, you know, the ivory tower for nothing. And um, some more than others like social interaction and not just to talk about law, but to have friends and to talk about 
music and theater and maybe uh, what's going on in, in, in sports. I mean, all kinds of things like that. I guarantee you, Justice Ginsburg did not want to talk about sports, however. <laughs> Even though she was quite a sporting woman. Oh yeah, she was very, she was quite the athlete. She was, you know, she golfed, she went, um, uh, she even went skydiving once. And, and, and Scalia said, he, I think it was in Italy someplace, and he said he saw her up there, this little bit of a thing, and he wondered how she was ever going to get down. I had no idea. I'm utterly terrified of skydiving. So I, I would not even... It wasn't, it wasn't well, not skydiving. It was parasailing. It was worse. <laughs> I want to pivot for just a moment to an audience question here that I similarly would love to know the answer to. In the early years at NPR, what was it like for you, for Koki, for Susan, and for Linda, working in a male-dominated newsroom? It wasn't a male-dominated newsroom. It was a female-dominated newsroom. And I, have, and I have often said that the reason was that it was, it was so different from any other place I'd ever worked, and the reason was that they paid so little, no man would take most of those jobs. <laughs> and the other, you know, there was a, there came a time when we were so um, relatively powerful within the structure of NPR, within the news structure, that some of the guys referred, Koki, Linda, and I sat in a corner and we, uh, we, we managed to commission a ratty old couch from somewhere else and put it in there so that other women would come and we would talk if there was a, an issue. And, they were, and some of the men in the newsroom referred to it as the fallopian jungle. <laughs> I always thought it was something of a compliment. <laughs> so despite your dominance as women of this newsroom, you, you still regularly benefited from the, the support and the promotion of this sisterhood in mm -hmm. the same way that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did from Justice O'Connor. Can you describe a bit what it was like to support one another, especially when sexism and misogyny were, were main stage in the workplace? Um. I never thought of it as misogyny. It was, but I never thought of it that way. I mean, because misogyny suggests you don't like women. Most of the men I knew liked women. They just didn't think that we should compete with them on an equal platform. Um, and most of the men I encountered in the early years of my life in Washington did not consider me or any other woman that I knew as a person to be reckoned with. They, and they did that at their peril, because they said very stupid things, and we quoted them. <laughs> but also, you know, I mean, you just had to deal with the fact that um, the sexism was, by today's standards, insane. I mean, nobody would dare, for the most part, do what members of Congress did, and you had to figure out a way to deal with it. So I would get catcalled in the speaker's lobby when I would walk through, and I would just ignore it. Or if sometimes I had a very good source, 
a senator who really was very helpful to me. And then one day I realized that he was pretty soon going to make a pass at me. And I had to figure out a way to deal with it. And people who have read this book really love this point. Because I, I said to him, oh, Senator, you remind me so much of my father. <laughs> I read that and I thought I have to take a page out of this book. <laughs> yeah. And and can you just can you describe how how you and and Koki and Linda really did support one another? How you made sure that any attempt to keep women down was skirted by your efforts? Well, it, in those days NPR was a lot smaller than it is today. And we knew every every reporter and every member of the newsroom. So if somebody, I remember at some point, Mara Eliasson was off on a fellowship and she wanted, she, I think, you know, she came to NPR and she was, in the beginning, she was a newscaster. And then I think she had just begun a little bit to cover Congress. And I can't remember the chronology of this, but she goes off on this um, fellowship and she's in Europe and they post a White House correspondence job. And I knew she would apply for that job if she were there. But I didn't know where she was. And I spent the better part of a day tracking her down in Germany. And I said, they've just posted this job. They'll undoubtedly close it, because you're gone for a couple of months. They'll close it before you come back. You fax me, because this was the still the day, you fax me your application, and I will take it to the vice president for news, who was, of course, a man. Um, and that way, they couldn't just ignore her. Now, I wonder, do you think that, I agree, please clap. Uh, do you think that that same sort of protective club is in order in a modern workplace where there is still sexism, of course. There is still discrimination. But often, it is not quite as out in the open. It's a bit more insidious. It's a bit harder to, to point to and prove. Could you know, women and, and uh, discriminated against groups today bolster one another in the same way you did in your oh, I, days? I think women do. Um, I don't think men and I think they sometimes are discriminated against because um, I think white men are sometimes, it's not an act of discrimination. It's an act of um, making up for years of other kinds of discrimination. But you really ought not eliminate consideration of every white male in the, in the, in the workforce when it comes to big promotions. And, um, and it's, it poses a very difficult balancing act. And I, you know, I think everybody ought to speak up. Now, speaking of a balancing act, I know this is a question you have been asked many times. Many people prior to my conversation with you said, are you going to ask this question? How can you balance a close friendship with a Supreme Court justice, of which you had a handful, uh, and fair and even reporting on the Supreme Court? I don't want to know the answer to that question. <laughs> I want to know, is it possible to do the kind of reporting that you did without close, intimate relationships 
with the individuals oh, who you're I'm not sure. I, I think my reporting was overwhelmingly enriched by knowing um, a large number of Supreme Court justices and knowing them more than that person sitting up on the bench. And um, I've always, I, I, I get this, you know, Justice Ginsburg was definitely my closest friend and my longest friend. I mean, I knew, other than my sisters, um, I, I knew her actually longer than Cokie and Linda. So, but I had other friends on the court who I knew for, for a long time before they were on the court. Some were more closer friends like Scalia and others were lesser, so like Justice than Chief Justice Rehnquist, who I knew in the Nixon administration. So I had lots of friends on the court, and I'm always interested that people ask me about my liberal friend, Justice Ginsburg, and they don't ask me, how could you be friends with Scalia? I could be friends with both of them because they were both frankly, rather lovable people on a personal basis. And knowing them as a reporter enriched what I did for a living, and knowing them on a personal level enriched my, my, my personal self. Hmm. Now, I know you ask the question in your book, could a, a Ruth Nino, as he's affectionately called, relationship happen today? Could a relationship between Scalia and yourself happen today? And what does the answer to that question tell us? What is your answer to that question? I don't actually 100% know. I ha do have conservative friends um, who, uh, who are judges and a couple who are now or in the past have been justices. But um, I never have expected that I could be 100% objective. I don't think anybody can be objective. We all have personal opinions. But what we do is a trade. I mean, I know people would like to say, oh, journalism's a profession. It's also a trade and a craft. And part of that trade is to be fair. And if you write a piece, um, you really want to get all the basic viewpoints in. And if you don't do that, you're shortchanging your readers and listeners, and you're shortchanging yourself as a professional. Now, an audience member asks if you know of any current cross-ideology friendships on the Supreme Court, anything like Ginsburg's and Scalia's? No, I don't. But this is a pretty overall new court. And I, I know that, for example, Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor actually have gone out of their way to try to build some sort of a personal bridge. They do that through, they both work on Justice O'Connor's um, uh, project for a citizen, for, it's called iCivics, which mm -hmm. is to promote civic education. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure how successful they've been beyond that, but you gotta start somewhere. And um, 
This is a court that is certainly the most conservative court that I've ever covered, but it's also remarkable in a different way. It's, it's, it's probably the most conservative court in 90 years, but it is totally different from any court I've ever covered because it has no center. There always were one, two, or three justices who from time to time moved to one side or another in ideological battles. And that is no longer true by and large. The Chief Justice very occasionally does not side with the other five conservatives to the extent that he doesn't want to go as far as they do. But beyond that, there is no center. And that makes this a very different court. And I wonder, with a court where you have justices whose homes are patrolled for fear of violence against their families, who are issuing decisions behind barricades, are relationships like those that you have had with members of the court possible today between journalists and Supreme Court justices? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I mean, I do have some, some members of the court who I think of as friends. They're not as close friends as I, I the relationships are not as close as my relationship with Justice Ginsburg or Justice Scalia or Justice Powell or Justice Brennan for that matter. Uh, but they haven't been there that long. Mm. You know, compared to somebody like me who's been there, I, when Justice Stevens retired, I remembered covering his confirmation hearing. So I have been there a very long time. <laughs> so give me a little time. From what I've read of you, you can do it. Let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to ask about a moment with Ruth. She had been in the hospital, and she hadn't explained to you much about why she was there, what she was ill with. And when she came out, she said, well, Nina, I didn't want you to feel trapped between your, your commitment to your your job as a journalist, and your friendship with her. Mm. And then you tell us that in the last 18 months of her life, you chose friendship. What did that mean practically for you? What it meant was that I, um, you know, I never knew my husband, David, was Justice Ginsburg's medical confidant. And I knew that they had confidential conversations. And I knew that I didn't actually even want to know what they were because I would be obligated to report them if I knew. Um, but for 18 months, she, I knew that her health was precarious. I, for a long time, thought she might, as she had so often before, um, be able to conquer cancer. And, live as long as she wanted to live, uh, which was definitely past the 2020 election. Um, and I guess in the last couple of months, I came to realize that was unlikely, 
although you could never be sure. I mean, we've all known people who we thought were gonna die very soon, and they, they didn't. And the one thing I could see with my own eyes was that her brain power was the same. She was often frail, but her brain was not. Now, we were backstage, and you know, your, your husband, David, is in the audience today, and you said to me, you know, why don't you ask me how I met him? And then David said, and then about the honeymoon. <laughs> Which, oh, you just wait. How did you meet your, your husband, David? My mother sold David and his late wife, Dave, uh, Gail, their house in Massachusetts when he moved there from Richmond. And he's a Massachusetts native. And um, I'm, uh, we were invited over when their, the renovation on their kitchen was done. And I was home visiting my folks. And so they brought me with them. And I met Gail and David. And we had a nice brunch. And then six years went by, um, or seven, I'm not quite sure. And my dad by then was uh, 89, and he was giving a concert in Boston and a recital. And I thought, well, I don't know how many more of these there are going to be. I should go home and go to the recital. And I'm standing there, and this man comes up to me, and he looks sort of familiar. And I know I know him, but I can't remember where. And I'm doing that Rolodex thing in your brain that gets harder and harder the older you are. And then I realized that this was Gail's husband. And my mother was crazy about Gail. And I said, how's Gail? And he said, Gail died. And he said, how's Floyd? And I said, Floyd died. Floyd was my late husband. And they died about a month apart. And um, I'll, I'll, skip, I'll cut to the chase. Some, some months later, I said to him, I said, David, do you think this is just luck? He said, oh, no. He said, my wife and your mother worked this out. And they went to Floyd, and he finally said, oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Our honeymoon was somewhat eventful because I got run over by a boat. And my husband is a trauma surgeon and scrubbed in to help, if not save my life, at least prevent me from being really in terrible trouble. But it was a very dramatic, you'll have to buy the book. <laughs> yeah, don't give too much away. It was, I gasped. Um, uh, a listener, or I apologize, an audience member asks, did you discuss your intention to write this book with Ruth? No, because I had no intention of writing one at that point. And um, after she died, I had many offers to write a book, as I had in the past. And as I had in the past, I said no, no, no. Um, and. I said no to Simon and & Schuster. And finally, the editor who called me said, well, would you talk to the CEO and the publisher? And I said, well, it'd be churlish to say no. But I had every intention of saying no. And then um, Jonathan Karp, the CEO, I said, look, I don't have a book in me about Ruth. I, don't, I didn't keep a journal. I don't remember half of what we talked about. 
if I probably don't remember seven-eighths of what we talked about. And um, I, there's just not enough there. And I, and I don't want to write a memoir. It's too hard. And he said, well, my idea is that you should write a book about the women of your generation who came up in an era when you weren't trying to break a glass ceiling. You were trying to get a foot in the door. And the, all the friendships um, you made that helped you along the way. And that is, by the way, included some of my friendships with men. And um, I was still saying no, and about a quarter of the way through this, my husband wandered into my workspace in the attic and sat down and is listening. And my ace in the hole here was to say, look, I'm not going to write a book because my husband doesn't want me to write a book because he figures he has to share my time too much as it is. And I value my marriage more than a book. And I had that all ready to say, and he says, I think you ought to write this book. <laughs> and if you look at the dedication in the book, it's to my husband, David, who talked me into writing this book and then spent the remaining months apologizing for it. <laughs> because it's a lot of work. And you speak quite a bit in the book, or you, I suppose you represent quite a bit, the different roles that various people play in a friendship. And that to be a great friend, you do not have to play every role for somebody. Right. But I think that can be hard to accept, understand, and come to? When did you realize, I, I am not simply sufficient, I, I am a relied upon dear and intimate friend, despite the fact that, for example, I am not Ruth's medical confidant? You, you can't be everything to everybody. And you have to accept the fact that showing up really is what counts most, and showing up when it counts. And there are even times when you can't show up. There was. You know, when Marty Ginsburg died, I did not make it to the funeral because Elena Kagan's confirmation hearing was going on. But when there was a break in the hearing, I dashed across the street, and the reception was going on after the funeral. And when she saw me, I was looking for her, and when she saw me, she, her face lit up, and she said, you made it. How did you make it? That's the idea. You make it if you can. And if you can't, you can't. Now, someone in the audience also asks, how do you develop long-lasting work relationships? Because it is, it is a slightly different you thing. You go to work. <laughs> I mean, people ask this all the time. Where did you make all these friends? <laughs> Most of my friends I made through work. If you think that sitting alone in your attic when you, you're not going to die anymore, get out there and go back to work. You also say, you speak to intentionality. You talk about the fact that intentional has become a thing. But that Ruth was intentional before it was cool. What did that look like when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was intentional? Well, when my late husband, when he fell uh, and hit his head and had a 
very severe brain injury. And he was in the hospital for six months or so. Um, if you include the rehab and all of that, he had to learn to walk again and all of that. And um, Ruth would just scoop me up periodically and take me somewhere with her. And on one of these occasions, she said, it's my birthday tomorrow night. Would you like to come to my birthday party? It was just a family birthday party. I was the only non-family member there. And there's a picture in the book of that birthday party. And so I was trying to date when that was. And it was at her cousin's house, Beth and Steve Hess. And I, I called them up. And I said to Beth, I said, I know this is probably crazy, but I came to a birthday party at your house at some point in the 90s. And I have no, I, 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 I'm not sure when. And I'm, and she said, well, have you got any rough idea? I said, I think it's probably between 93 and 95 or 6. And so she said, well, I, I'll go look in my diaries. And she called me back. <clears throat> and being very organized, she said, yeah, you were here on March then and then in 1995. You would not have a prayer of having such a me be able to pull that out of anything I, and I, and I, and then her husband said, I've got all of Ruth's notes to us. Let me, I think she must have sent us a thank you note, because she always sent a thank you note. And he said, it's here. I'll send it to you. And in that note, she thanks them for the lovely dinner, et cetera, et cetera. And then she says, and I think it was also a big spirit lifter for Nina T. So she knew damn well what she was doing. She was taking me out someplace to have a great time to lift my spirits. Would you say that that was often the role, if we're speaking about roles in friendships, <clears throat> the role that Ruth Bader Ginsburg played for you in your life? No, I, I, it was more diverse than that. <laughs> you know, she married David and me. She performed the wedding ceremony. Um, and she'd been in the hospital the night before and had forbidden Marty to tell, tell us because she was very clear that she was going to be there and she didn't want me to worry. And um, she married us. We had many wonderful dinner parties together when Marty was alive because I'm lucky I married a really good chef. And she's really lucky because she's, I'm not a bad cook, she's a terrible cook. Um, <laughs> and she married. Marty Ginsburg, who became a great chef in the course of their marriage. There, as I've said, there are so many dinners in this book. <laughs> and there are also, there are movies and, and they're going out to dinner, but what, what's so special about cooking for your friends and loved ones, having them over around a table and having a conversation? I just think that sitting down to dinner, not a catered affair, a dinner with friends, either at home or after a movie, um, is special. And that you have a kind of communication that you don't have when you've got your full regalia on for the rest of your functions. You describe a moment 
when Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court stops being the good girl. Mm -hmm. And one of the audience members asks, you know, what characteristics and skills made Ginsburg such an effective justice? How did you see her grow into those elements that made her so effective and by the end of her life, revered? Well, I'm not quite sure. I've given a great deal of thought as to why she became an icon in her 80s. Certainly when she joined the court in 1993, she was um, the architect of the battle for women's rights in the courts. And she had, for all practical purposes, won the big cases. Um, but she wasn't the most prominent person by any means on the court or the most prominent woman. Sandra Day O'Connor was. She was the first woman. Uh, for somebody who wants to read an, a really wonderful um, biography of a woman, I, I commend Evan Thomas's book about Justice O'Connor called First, which was issued a couple of years ago. Um, and O'Connor was the revered icon for women, and so, uh, not just women, but especially for women, um, when she was named to the court in, I guess it was 81. And she served on the court as the only woman for 12 years. And she was a really attractive, pretty, vivacious um, woman who loved to go dancing, would stay at, go out to all kinds of events in Washington and then go home and work, which is exactly what Justice Ginsburg did. And she was a great big sister to Justice Ginsburg when Ginsburg joined the court. And it's almost a crazy thing, but you know, Justice O'Connor was a tall, raw-boned uh, daughter of the West, literally, uh, you know, grew up on a ranch the size of Rhode Island. Um, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an intellectual, tiny little Jewish lady from Brooklyn. And they looked nothing alike. And even the most famous advocates at the Supreme Court would turn to one of them, would turn to O'Connor and say, well, Justice Ginsburg, or turn to Ginsburg and say, well, Justice O'Connor. And I could, I could never figure it out. I mean, the men look, some of them look very similar. They're sort of tall, skinny, balding guys. I mean, <laughs> these women look nothing alike. And they found, O'Connor particularly was not amused. I, I, think, I think Ginsburg was um, alternatively amused and not amused. But there were some, you know, I mean, Walter Dellinger, who was the Solicitor General of the United States, did that one day. And he said the minute he had the words came out of his mouth, he knew what he'd done. And he just wanted to wish that the floor would open up and he could drop down and just never be seen again for weeks. But it happened. And, and it, I think it's really somewhat tragic that O'Connor's, uh, legacy as the first woman. Most women today, younger women, have no idea who she is or was. And she was a heroic um, 
presence on the court and an advocate for women's rights on the court. And in those first 12 years, every time she had to go to the bathroom, she had to go back to her own chambers. The men had their own bathroom. She didn't. Only when Ginsburg came did they finally decide, well, maybe they ought to outfit the place with a separate John for the, for, for the women. And now you got to watch a dear friend who, as you say, you were friends with prior to your relationships with your, your sisterhood of women at NPR. You got to watch her become the second ever female Supreme Court justice. You got to see her assert herself in wonderful and thoughtful ways, in opinions and more often dissents. And then you got to see her become this icon. Did you ever express to her that you were proud of her? No. <laughs> I mean, she knew that I admired her. She was the most beautiful writer and the most concise writer. And she didn't, she was, very, she was also a, a writer who was restrained, but when she, the most, you know, her, one of her most famous quotes when she wrote The Dissent, when the court struck down um, the key provision of the Voting Rights Act, um, and, and the, the court's opinion written by, the, by Chief Justice Roberts said that there was no need for this law anymore. And she wrote, you know, that's like saying uh, you should toss away your umbrella in the middle of, the, of a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And that is the kind of um, restrained but um, scalpel-like thing that she would say. <laughs> and I wish I could write like that. Uh, I wish I had those analogies. Uh, I don't. Um, I'm a fairly straightforward writer. So, um, but I never, you know, when she died, I told her she'd been, that she was my darling friend and I, and that knowing her had been one of the great privileges of my life and that's as close as I came. Mm -hmm. And, go ahead. <laughs> You described that when Ruth would come to dinner and often you would invite other friends, you found at a point that you would sit with her and speak with her and others would listen. And you sort of had an audience. Well, you're, 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 I think you're conflating two things. She would, you know, we would, I would, after Marty died, we would often have her to dinner with other friends. We even did when Marty was still alive, but um, we would, you know, there would be six or seven or eight of us for dinner. And Ruth was, would often, always enjoyed other people's conversation. And she only spoke when she had something to say. And so on one occasion, we were all disparaging the presidency of Jimmy Carter. And she finally raised her hand like this. At the end, she, sits, she was sitting at the end of the table next to David, and she said, I dissent. <laughs> and she said, he named more women and people of color to the court than had ever been named before. He named, he, he did an extraordinary job, and she went on, and, and of course, we all paid a lot of attention, and we stopped saying mean things about Jimmy Carter at that point. <laughs> 
There were times when she would come to our, we give a couple of big parties, at least pre-COVID we did, big parties a year for um, surgeons, surgical residents, uh, reporters, judges, uh, lawyers, friends, all of them friends, and um, of many different uh, uh, probably political persuasions, I would say. And she liked to come to, the, to these, especially, I think, after Marty died. And um, she would come late at, in the party. She knew that it, the crowd would be thinning, and there wouldn't be 100 people there. There would be 30 or something like 25. And she would come, and we would save food for her, and we would sit at the table. I would sit and talk with her. And after a couple of times, people, I realized that every woman who was left was standing listening to us. I sort of invited people to sit down, and I would, we would talk. We would just talk. And in fact, just this week, um, I, try, I tried to, I asked Simon Schuster to send um, a book to everybody who's mentioned in the book, but I couldn't find addresses for some of them. And the one that was really defying me was Martin Sheen. And that is because Ruth, in one of these conversations, said that she and Martin Sheen had been, and Martin Sheen's wife, had been in the same um, natural childbirth class together <laughs> in New York when her son, when, when, when she was pregnant with her son. And, um, and I, and so I, uh, and I have to say that ever, ever after that disclosure to me, and, and, and she said, he was in a play, his first really breakthrough play, and she said, I think it was the subject was roses. And David, we're talking, you know, 50 years ago. And David says, oh, that can't, he, she can't be remembering that. And he looks it up, and that's exactly right. And so, so um, but I did notice that every, ever after that, when, when she talked about this, she referred to him as my Martin Sheen. <laughs> Now, you describe in Ruth a woman with a deep memory, as you've just described. And I've, I've got a handful of those people in my life, and they're infuriating. Because you can never win, and you're always wrong if you're trying to recall something. How did you find that that served Ruth when it came to the way that she interacted with other justices on the court? Well, I actually wouldn't know. Mm. Because, I mean, they don't, after all... They ask questions. The questions may be to serve a purpose, but they don't correct each other, by and large. So I would have no idea how that worked out. And it's not like other justices don't have really good memories also. They do. Maybe not all of them have the same kind of memory, but she was really eerie in her memory uh, for details. Even in stories that I would tell about the two of us, and you would think that I would know them as well as she did, but I did not. She would correct me and she would be right. And I didn't find it um, infuriating. I found it a little bit humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the better word. I'm mixing my emotions there a little bit. How did you write this book without her? Well, I did. I would never, you know, I, I had no, I really didn't want to write a book about her. And this book is not 
She's the famous person in this book, and what is going to sell this book, and I guess I should say it's, num it's apparently going to be number four on the best New York Times bestseller list. So <laughs> the, title, the title, which I didn't dream up, uh, Simon & Schuster dreamed up, has served its purpose well. And it is a lot about her in places. But in lots of other places, it's not at all about her. It's a way to frame a story about my life as a journalist. And my friends, my family, my three sisters, who are probably my closest friends. And, um, and I hope it entertains people. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a hard read. Um, and this is my first book and my last. I'm not writing anymore. <laughs> It's certainly not the end of your work. And, and in the epilogue, you describe a court greatly changed over the past 10 years, and especially recently. And yet you affirm that, like Ruth, you were optimistic. I wonder, do you feel that way today? Do you feel optimistic about the court, about the work that you'll be able to do reporting on it? Well, I'll be able to do reporting on it unless I get deathly ill or somebody poisons me. Um, but for a time, anyway. Uh, but I don't actually know what's going to happen to the court. I think it's a very perilous time for the court. And um, it has, at least for now, uh, lost a good deal of the faith that people had in it, um, due in large part to the abortion decision. And one decision is not going to end things for uh, the court's cachet, so to speak. But even a decision as important as the Dobbs case. But as I said, this is a court that is more conservative than any other court, I think, probably in 90 years. And that runs the gamut from um, social issues to technology issues to issues of um, some people say weaponizing even the First Amendment um, to issues involving regulation and all kinds of other things that uh, we don't have time to talk about tonight. And I think that the justices, as I said earlier, don't exactly love each other at the moment and that it's a, a, a very perilous time for the group of them as a court. And I don't know where it's going. Well, we'll wait and see. What, what, your mother's quote, I'll see you on the radio. Yeah, that's um, how I ended it. Yeah. Actually, what, you know, I had to write an epilogue because of the leak and because of the Dobbs decision. I had to write an epilogue. And, um, um, my publishers wanted me, obviously, to write about the Dobbs case because it was very much in everybody's, the forefront of everybody's mind, and the leak. And at the same time, they wanted me to end on an optimistic note. <laughs> so I just, at the end, said, as, uh, but I'm not hanging up my spurs. And as my mother used to say to me all the time, I'll see you on the radio. Now, for those of you who listen to the audiobook, I added something at the, else at the end, and I said, but let's let my father have the last word, 
and I used the about the last minute of a of him playing a Paganini caprice, uh, and so it's a great ending. It, he also he plays a, a Bach partita at the beginning, Paganini caprice at the end, um, so I think it's it's good. I'll be rereading your book via your voice probably <laughs> next week. I'm very <laughs> excited. And to end this evening, perhaps not on an optimistic note, but something that I found utterly delightful to learn about Ruth Bader Ginsburg is that she enjoyed gossip. She would get a little kick out of it. <laughs> and I would just, and, and even that is, is, it's sweet, the gossip that she enjoyed. What kind of gossip would Ruth sort of quietly pass on at the dinner table? You mean her gossip to me? Her gossip she did. She did know gossip, too. I mean, she never gossiped about her colleagues. She was more circumspect than that. However, she really got a certain amount of joy learned, telling me about lower court judges, <laughs> and who, some of whom were dating each other, who was dating whom, and who was fighting with whom, and how much they were fighting. So that was her idea of gossip. <laughs> Did it ever surprise you? I mean, she'd been your friend your whole life, but I think about how many individuals I interview who are experts in something, and if I ever meet them again and we slowly become closer, I become more comfortable with them. But there's a little bit of my revering them, deeply respecting them, keeping a distance from them. Um, did you ever, were you ever surprised by Ruth as a person versus a justice? You know, she was a pretty reserved person. So even in her, even with her health tra travails, she really didn't let her hair down much. And there's a scene in the book that I tell where I had interviewed her in Little Rock. It was in the last probably sometime during the last 18 months, or two years of her life anyway. And um, she had done this, she, uh, the Clinton Library was, it was, had asked me if I would interview her because she had said she wanted me to be the person. So we went to Little Rock and, um, well, first of all, I don't know what they thought, but they put out the tickets as available, and they, of course, were sold out in about 10 minutes. So they needed, realized they needed a bigger venue, and the only one that they thought would be big enough was the Verizon Center, which held 16, actually, it turns out, 18,000 people. And that was sold out, and they had an equal number of waitlisted people. So there we are, President Clinton, um, introduces us, and we're sitting there, and it's, you know, it's a basketball arena, essentially. It's, you know, he's big, and we're sitting there, even I'm a little person in that milieu, and you could have heard a pin drop. And then we had dinner that night with President Clinton, and I looked, and I saw what she was eating, and the fact that they kept filling her glass with wine, and uh, and I knew that this was going to play havoc probably with her gut. But you cannot, in a, even when you're, you're sitting with the former president and the head of the Clinton Library, 
and Ruth and me, and I did not feel I could reach over and say, Ruth, you can't drink that much wine. <laughs> so she, I don't think that what she ate was so terrible, what she, she but they were just, so, and in the morning she was late, and I, you know, and I'm wondering where she is, and I go to her room, and one of her female guards says that she's not feeling well. Well, I knew what that meant. <laughs> so I knocked on the door, and I said, can, and she answered it, and, and her hair was down, it wasn't in her scrunchie. And I said, can I help? Can I, you know, can I help you? And she said, no. And it was clear she wanted me out of there. She just needed, she was tearing apart her, her suitcase looking for some sort of medication to get her gut back in order. And I was not wanted there. And she was very self-sufficient that way. She was not, she was not one to share her aches and pains much with me. She, may, she shared them with David, but not with me. And I'm not sure she shared them with anybody else except her doctors. I don't know whether she shared them with Jane and Jim, her daughter and son, and they both took wonderful care of her. Um, but she was their mother. She was not, you know, my, she was their mother to the end. And that's just who she was. You had to sort of, she was a very warm person, but it was a, a kind of warmth that is indescribable. It's just there. Nina, thank you for, despite a slight unwillingness, writing this book, <laughs> sharing with us your friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and so many others. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and congratulations on the number four bestseller on the New York Times list. I want to take a moment here and just say thanks to everyone who helped to put this event together. The Music Hall Executive Director, Tina Sautel, New Hampshire Public Radio President and CEO, and my boss, Jim Schachter. Writers on a New England stage interviewer, that would be me, Hannah McCarthy. Uh, New Hampshire Public Radio Producer, my dear colleague, Sarah Plord. The Music Hall Production Manager, Jana Morris. The Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineer, Ian Martin. Musical Director and Band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And, of course, the Music Hall literary producer, Brittany Wasson. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you, Nina Totenberg, for being here. Have a wonderful night.